Chef Patrai, good afternoon, everybody. This is our third micro method workshop with a content expert on MMIWP, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and People and Task Force. This is a collaboration with War Cry Podcast. Our sponsor for today is Na'a Ilihi Fund. The topic can be sensitive and triggering. Again, welcome to this episode of War Cry Podcast. We are an all native run podcast discussing data, events, stories, issues, and historical connections about Northwest missing and murdered natives. We are located on the Yakima Reservation. And thank you for joining us for this episode. My name is Emily Washings, and co host today is Robin Pibishi. Our guest today is Chris Cuestas from the National Violence Prevention Resource Center. And I'll turn it to Chris to introduce himself and the micro method workshop and the content we'll be covering today. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad to be able to bring you part three of our micro method workshops. We're going to be covering some more specific data regarding uh, task force. Uh, developing and the final steps of actually putting your task force in place. Uh, our next session is going to be more along the lines of uh, how does a task force reach out and begin to uh, incorporate everything that they've learned and have developed uh, to address the issues of cold case investigations and MMIW issues within their tribal setting. This has been a really great experience uh, and I've had uh, just a, a tremendous time working with the War Cry podcast team and I'm looking forward to even uh, some expansion in the future and to be able to bring you more timely uh, up-to-date and topic-specific education as we begin to address these issues that are challenges within tribal settings. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to step into screen share here and then we're gonna go ahead and get started. Micro method workshop number three. Uh, what we're going to be addressing for this session is basically looking at strategic planning of the task force. We're gonna be looking at operational procedures, uh, developing and the use and the necessity of task force subcommittees, uh, developing, addressing the community needs by developing a community assessment, uh, how do we capture information in the form of community-based surveys that support the community assessment that, to help create the strategic plan and compiling supportive data? And probably everyone's favorite is sustainability. How do we pay the bills? We're going to try to condense all this and try to get it out within the time frame that we've been given. And I think it'll be uh, probably one of our better sessions because we are really looking at meat and potatoes of task force development as opposed to just generalized information. Our task force is still under the construction phase, but we're just about completed to where we can put everything together and then begin to apply what we've learned and what we've developed to address some of our community needs and some of our challenges to be able to impact and offset some of these developing and evolving subcultures and trends within the tribal setting. So we've established the task force, developed all the, all the supportive information, the, the protocols, 
we know that the task force must be overseen by a board. Uh, we showed you last time we met a flow chart as to how it's a top-down strategy. Uh, the task force must be directed by procedures. Uh, you have to have procedures in place so that everyone is aware of what their responsibility is. Everyone is com comfortable with the memberships, uh, membership of the task force, and also that we begin to develop this uh, collaborative. Uh, it's essential to have procedures because you want to keep the task force on, on task. Uh, not that they won't be on task, but here's, here's the challenge. And this is one of the biggest issues when it comes to a task force. When you take on challenging and layered issues within a, a setting, tri tribal or otherwise, for example, MMIW, MIP, there's so many facets and factors and layers to addressing MMIW and MIP. It's, uh, it's very likely that the task force is going to just take off in very directions. And you have to have more of a direct approach, becoming methodical and developing a process and learning your team is not going to happen in your first session. It's going to take some. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some development. That's why uh, your task force facilitator is really important to have, especially when it has had experience in actually putting nuts and bolts together of a task force, as opposed to just being thrown a manual and saying this is how task forces are supposed to operate. Uh, but having that field experience and that developmental experience of actually facilitating the task force you had to learn all the nuances of what happens within a community setting, a tribal setting, when it comes to getting this collective and this collaborative, collaborative moving in one direction. It's clear that in, uh, reviewing and accepting your rules and procedures is a very valuable first step in having group cohesiveness. So uh, when you have one of your first introductory sessions, you bring them all together, and you step-by-step step review what the procedures are. There was a question last time when we met, well, how do you, are you going to have disruptive individuals in a task force meeting that are uh, more aggressive or agitated about the topics that you're going to cover? Yeah, you are, you're always going to have people that are upset and are, are going to ask, why did this take so long? And why are we doing this now? But when you explain the rules and procedures and that there's time frames for us to speak and to verbalize our opinions and then minimize their, their ability to provide Q&A, then you really, you really lessen the impact of those disruptive individuals. And if they want to stay part of the task force, that's fine. High energy, very uh, aggressive uh, regarding the, the subject matter. And those types of individuals, you can actually put to work, but to review and cover and address and explain the rules and procedures is probably one of the most important steps to take at the beginning. And then once they review the rules and procedures, it's not a bad idea to have them sign off that they've read them and that they've reviewed them. Because if you do have an issue at, at a later time, you can bring it back to that uh, document that was signed for their uh, their involvement in the task force and how the task force operates. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. This is a, a task force that I'm currently uh, facilitating in Puyallup. And 
we have the explanation of what the procedures are. Again, remember, if you're interested in these documents, all you have to do is, is press the screenshot button and it'll it'll give you a, a copy on your desktop or on your, on your laptop. But we explained the task force uh, procedures, how many times it meets, that you actually have oversight in the form of a, a uh, board, an oversight board, that who is the facilitator of the task force. And you kind of break down all the steps that we operate in the form of subcommittees, which we'll cover in a minute here. And then how you are able to bring issues uh, to the table and get them identified and get them resolved. And then when the, each individual fills out a task force application, and then they actually sign off that they've reviewed the procedures and that they will maintain the confidentiality of the task force. Not that you're being you're developing this big secretive underground uh, movement, but it's just it's just to have those protocols in place so that people understand. Look, uh, we have a facilitator, we have a board, we have the memberships, and we're going to be talking about pretty uh, delicate information that you know we want to work at and, and address as a community-based entity. And you know we want to keep it in house, and, and it, it kind of sets the tone for a operational and a working group, as opposed to just a, a group that has a meeting for the, the sake of having a meeting. And and the more procedures that you put in place, the easier it is to de develop that fluidity that you need to operate it as a community-based group. So that's why I think that procedures are very important. There's procedures for the board. We covered them last session, and there's actual procedures for the task force. Uh, and board signs off on acknowledgement, and the membership signs off and acknowledgement of the procedures and how the task force will function within that tribal setting. So let's talk about uh, subcommittees. Why are subcommittees and what do subcommittees do within the framework of a community-based task force? Well, uh, these are small subdivisions of the main task force that consider community measures that need to be reviewed and resolved. And then you, the subcommittee will then report to the, the full task force regarding their finding, uh, findings and the, the, the next step or the direction for that subcommittee to develop and pursue. The interesting thing about task force is they're very important because this allows the members of the group of the task force to break into smaller groups to accomplish individual tasks, which I think is really essential to a, a working group. Talented people with, with high energy normally would gravitate toward projects. And then they'll even tell you, I, I wanna be part of this task force, but I actually wanna work on something. I just don't wanna sit here and be fed like a baby bird. I, I actually want to accomplish something, which I think is either a barrier or something that we need to resolve within our setting or something that we need to develop. And that, and I say, don't, don't try to uh, calm that energy down because I think that's, that's really important for a task force. And it it'll allows you uh, to accomplish things faster. If you have someone that has that type of, of energy and determination and insight. And the task force actually will determine the deadlines of the project and the subcommittee response to the uh, group. And the subcommittee chair, will usually report back to the body of the task force in the form of an agenda item. So subcommittees are very important. They allow you to not only pursue or move forward on your task force objectives, but they also begin to assist you 
in breaking down some of the barriers and some of the the, the challenges that exist when you're when you're developing a working collaborative within a in, within a particular setting. A perfect example is uh, well, if you have a task force and members of that task force will want to participate in the the day to day operations of their employ their employment with the tribe. So a subcommittee could be formed to go and meet with the tribal leadership and give task force members the opportunity to uh, attend the task force meeting during the workday and not be uh, not be charged for missing work or not be uh, questioned for what their you know where their time is being spent uh, because it's a community-based initiative and you're going to draw your task force membership from the community itself so it, it would be best just to get them to come into that that task force meeting uh, under the auspices of uh, a, a tribal employee and not be uh, have any repercussions for doing that. So that's a, that's a very simplistic subcommittee that can be formed and get those questions answered about, are we gonna allow to be, to come or attend the task force meeting during the course of our workday? Pretty easy, but you're accomplishing some of the tasks that you need to be able to move forward as a collaborative. Uh, limit your scope of your projects and your objectives into your task force has a, a fluid working process. Meaning that uh, you you have this your task force that you know you know who your your workers are you know who the, the ones that are going to be uh, talented with specific roles within the group people that can relate and connect with some of your other tribal programs and then you have those individuals that are more supportive that want to participate in activities and events. So it, it, there's a time frame to where you begin to uh, learn who those individuals are and what roles they'll play. So until you have those develop and have some fluidity as to how the task force is going to move on, keep your object, objectives, I would say, for the first six to eight months, relatively small. And this means that the group is beginning to accept its, its place and its role within the, the larger collaborative. And they begin to establish their contacts within the community. and they get known for uh, their work regarding uh, several topics within that set, within the tribal setting. Many task force members already have ongoing relationships and uh, either familial or professional. They also may have working knowledge with some of the programs that they may be tasked to participate and get certain uh, issues resolved within that, within that task force and within that tribal setting. So uh, those people that have those uh, contacts and connections and information, uh, and they're willing to participate in the in the subcommittee, perfect place for them is to put them into into uh, a working a smaller working group. For example, if you're if you're going to be, uh, it may may have may have gone. One of the things that a task force is going to have to be challenged with is reviewing the code. Uh, there's sometimes when you have disruptive activity within the community setting. You have to codify that behavior, uh, write the law and order code. So a subcommittee would be best suited to uh, network with the tribal prosecutor and potentially one or two of the tribal judges to uh, obtain their opinion, uh, their insight and their direction. They may even have seen some other code that they had thought about and you can use those same individuals to review their drafts. 
you come up with a draft, you see if they like the way it's written or if it should be changed, or you should uh, change some of the verbiage from uh, shall, may, or will. But you know that's how a subcommittee operates. You, you work with the individuals that are already have some some contact and some uh, some knowledge of what the issues that you're going to be addressing. So that there's a benefit to that. And subcommittees have got to be uh, in a position to recognize that. And a lot of times they, they will, especially because of their previous experience and, and knowledge of community and how the tribe operates. The community assessment. Basically, it's the tool that's developed to direct and uh, confront the community-based and regional challenges. The assessment is kind of the, uh, the overall review of what your issues are and what the challenges are and how the community got to the level of the challenges that they're dealing with currently. You have to be able to obtain and gather information to support for the leaders, tribal leadership and from, for the members of the board and the task force and the community, why we are operating in, in this direction and taking this path. And the assessment is the perfect tool to do that because the assessment basically brings all of the multi-facets of input into one particular document, which I think is really essential for a community that not only wants to address some issues, but also look at some strategic planning. Because strategic planning is essential to be able to address some of these issues. The community assessments co compiles information from varied sources uh, that can be used to identify growth patterns and trend analysis. And one of the things that I think is very, very much ignored in tribal settings is using data. Because data can help you map and data can also help you develop a strategic response to what the community challenges are. And there's so many software programs out there where you can collate this data and the data will begin to serve, bring to the surface some of the bigger issues that the tribe needs to recognize. I, I recently saw a, uh, a report based on calls for service of a community where crimes that were being reported, they were all surrounding the tribe's casino. And what, it, what, the, what the report was telling you, or what the data was telling us, was that there were the criminal activity sur surrounding the tribe property was beginning to encroach on the location where most commonly individuals uh, attend that have money in their pockets. And the crimes were connected to money-based issues like narcotics, selling of stolen property, fencing, things of that nature, uh, purchasing of guns. Uh, and it was all, all of the data suggested that all these criminal elements were encroaching on the tribal casino. And you could see uh, within the, the map of all the compiled data, you could see just this buffer between the casino and all of the criminal activity that was taking place. So to me, what that is telling me is that we need to bring there, you need to be, bring more of a focus for insulation between the tribal's property and those criminal elements that were encroaching. And that's what data will tell you. Data will assist you in not only identifying what the challenges are, but it will also help you to recognize what some of the surveillance mechanisms 
you may be able to put into place that can influence those tendencies and those growth patterns that are taking place within the community setting. But I think there's a tendency to downplay data. Uh, and it's kind of interesting where we're talking about community-based policing uh, in tribal communities that are now transitioning to community-based policing. But one of the biggest facets of community-based policing is the inclusion of data. It's interesting how they're, they're figuring or addressing that dynamic is if, if you're doing community place, uh, community policing, you need to be inclusive of data. So why not begin to uh, allow data to be a partner to not only to what you're addressing in the community, but also what your needs assessment are to not only the community itself, but to the tribal leadership with regards to resources and allocation and use of equipment. Uh, it just kind of seems like there's a disconnect. And uh, I think the more you do that, the better off the community will be to address some of these really challenging issues that we see on the horizon with regards to tribal land. So uh, that's just my, my sense with regards to data. And data is also, data can be included in the assessment because you're tabulating and collating and gathering perspectives on challenges within that setting. The community assessment is going to pinpoint those existing risk factors. It's going to specifically tell you this is where it's taking place. This is the, the how it's happening, and it will also it will also bring to the attention of the community uh, where the problem derived from. Was it something that came in? Was it a transplant behavior? Was it something that we saw developed internally? Uh, is it something where we saw uh, families move back from metropolitan communities and bring those influences to us? How exactly did this begin to? seed within our setting and then begin to mushroom. Uh, that's what the assessment does. It also ser serves it as baseline data. And that's a real challenge for tribal communities because we're finding that more and more grant opportunities and funding opportunities are, are telling and uh, advising tribes, we're not going to rely on state data to support a tribal grant. Uh, and what they're trying to do is they're encouraging the tribes to begin collect their to collect their own information, their own tribal data uh, and tribal statistics, so that they can include that into their their request for funding in the form of uh, grant. But baseline data also helps to support action plans. Again, it's 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 kind of the the way of twenty first century application of uh, resources. I think the tribe needs to recognize that and, and begin to look at how can data analysts come into our community and begin to assist us uh, because it, it does really have, have an impact. The challenge is who's going to be tasked to accomplish this role for a community. And here's where one of the challenges take place. What we're looking at is we're, we're looking at uh, a significant challenge of MIW, MIP in tribal settings. And the communities themselves are rising and providing, making, putting pressure on the federal government to begin to address these issues because these challenges did not occur in a vacuum. Something has transitioned over the course of, of years to get us to where we're seeing this behavior being mushroomed. So what is the response? Well, the response can't be, well, here's a book. 
I'm going to give you a notebook on how to develop a task force. And then I'm going to walk away and I'll check on you six, eight, 10, 12 months down the road and see where you are. I, I know of some tribes that are in that position right now uh, because they, they were given a book six months ago uh, or a framework, if you will, without any actual uh, roadmap or how to's. And a, a lot of their evolution and development has been stymied because they really don't have the background on facilitating a community-based action plan, an assessment, uh, st strategic development, and also facilitating the day-to-day -day operations of a task force. And here's the other challenge, is the, uh, the majority of tribal professionals have an invested and they are overwhelmed with the same issue that non-tribal settings are, looking for workers, looking for individuals to come in and take on roles and responsibilities within the tribe, hiring you know, behavioral health specialists and substance abuse specialists and treatment specialists, because what we're seeing is the pool is getting smaller and smaller. So the, uh, what I'm finding, my experience is, is the tribes need more than just a, you know, a recipe. They need more plans specific to developing the steps of the task force, kind of like what we're what we're doing here. And I'm I'm going into just, you know, generalized terminology and generalized development. Uh, we can spend additional sessions. Hey, Chris, I just want to um, give our viewers just a chance to understand in take in what you're saying right now. I think it's really great to talk about this aspect of the micro workshops and how they connect to basically this federal act, Savannah's Act. This training is happening and taking place as a result of Savannah's Act from the Department of Justice. And what Chris is talking about is there's this booklet handed to tribes and they're basically said, you know, these are the different tools. Here's some presentations. Now go and create this. So it's essentially connecting why these micro workshops connect to that process that's being uh, undertaken by tribes throughout the nation right now. But I wonder if you can also in that talk, just frame one or two sentences, if you could, to tribal council at tribes or even community oh. at tribes about why tribes should prioritize task force in their communities now. Very, that's a very good question. I will start off by, by explaining that they will not take the time to develop or resolve infrastructure issues with regard to MMIW, MIP for the individual tribes. Each tribe has to have its own protocols in place. Each tribe has to have its own responsive uh, rules and procedures in place. Each tribe has to have its, its own deployment rules and procedures in place. And each tribe has to have its own family support elements in place with regards to the, uh, the family feeling the repercussions of their, their miss, missing or murdered or lost loved ones. That's not something that the federal government's gonna go back and fix for each individual tribe. Can you, can you just imagine that it's, it would be virtually impossible for them to do that. So having a community-based collaborative where they can begin to develop their own protocols and their own procedures and, and work within that tribal setting 
and even begin to look at some of the, because we've already seen that some of this behavior uh, is can be connected back to uh, domestic violence issues and also relationship violence issues and also the tribal uh, drug issue. So begin, so to begin to codify and also be responsive to those challenges that we know are contributors to the MIP issue is another thing that the federal government is not going to individually take time out for each tribe to develop. They're leaving that to the sovereign tribes to develop. So we need to look at the surrounding our, our loved ones and our, our tribal ladies and uh, two-spirit individuals with proper codes so when they find themselves initially at risk, then they can begin to look for and contact law enforcement and look for services and resources internally instead of waiting until they, they end up becoming a victim. And I also think the tribes need to uh, recognize that the federal government is not going to go back and individually resolve the victim witness issues for the families in those tribal settings. That's something the tribe's gonna have to do. The tribe's gonna have to write those protocols, gonna have to write those procedures. It's going to have to look for the resources to provide uh, services and assistance and for the, for the victim's family and provide those introductory uh, steps for the family to take when they are uh, missing a loved one and who do we turn to? How do we get these things going? How do we navigate this criminal justice system? That's going to be up to each individual tribe. The federal government is not going to go back and fix that on behalf of that particular tribe. It's just, uh, it's just too monumental of a task. So those are all things that the tribes need to address internally. And the way to do that internally is, to, it is uh, through what we've been working on here is developing a community-based task force that is recognized within the tribe that is also sanctioned by the tribe, which is endorsed by uh, a reso continuing resolution. And you begin to take these challenges individually to tribal leadership and get them resolved. And then you begin to incrementally begin to build up responses for all of those challenges. And that's what uh, these micro method workshops were intended to do is to get us started and to give us more knowledge to develop these uh, these community-based task forces in the tribal setting, opposed from just giving us a, a generalized note. So I hope that answers the question. Yes. All right, let's go on. Yeah. Community-based surveys. Why are surveys important? A lot of times we kind of downplay it because surveys in of themselves, we think they're time consuming. Uh, we think that they're, uh, you know, even if I fill this out, it's a waste of time. But I think if you develop surveys specifically as opposed to generally, you can really get some insight into what's happened to the tribe and what direction the tribe has taken. The community surveys will basically feel, take the pulse of that community. It's gonna capture their insights on, on what the issues are at the community level. Uh, it's one thing to get information and insight from the program level, but to get it from the citizenry is really essential. You'll, you'll obtain information that identifies what previous may, previously may have worked within the, within the community and what derailed that 
that energy or that action or that program or that process. Uh, and I found I found every time I do an assessment of tribal communities that they did have a lot of solutions to the issues, but there there was some internal changes, maybe some politics in play, uh, and maybe just some some dynamics that broke down and the project lost its inertia and it just subsided. But conceptually, it was a great idea. Uh, topic selection for these surveys will be based upon the greatest need within the community. So you're gonna be brought in to address specific issues, for example, MMIW, MIP. So do you, you begin to build your survey around those issues and beginning with the actual experience of, of, of loss of loved ones. You can add, add those questions in the, in the form of a survey. You can also include questions with regards to, uh, do we have enough uh, code to support community members when they sense that issues are taking place where they may end up becoming victims because of either relationship violence or dating violence or some of these other issues that we know that are, are uh, direct contributors to the MMIW concept. So yeah, you, you build your surveys along that line. As a courtesy, if you're gonna cross over, I've found this a lot with, with uh, communities is that other programs have already surveyed the community. So you can either use their survey information or you can ask them permission to resurvey the, the community population. And the survey is gonna give you both quantitative and anecdotal information. Remember, this is not a, uh, the quantitative information is good, but anecdotal information is supportive and you want that included as well. And you can also have just general information regarding your subject matter if you add a comment section. And I always add a comment section. I add four or five lines at the end of that subject matter that I'm serving. I'm surveying so I can have a community member, an elder, a program person, Give me some either some anecdotal or some general knowledge or just some insight on why they believe those those challenges are within that setting. So and then once you compile and the way I do my surveys is I will have a general session, uh, a general training session, and I bring just a, a cross section of the entire community into one locale, and then I will tell them that they're attending the session, which is for their benefit, but the response is just to fill out the survey for me. And then I will also schedule a session, a community, a session in the schools, because I want the youth population to be able to respond to the surveys as well. And they'll get the insight from uh, the youth. And then if, if we have time, I try to do a program specific from all the tribal professionals to attend a, a, a training and then I will get their survey information from them as well. So, and I think the last assessment I, I completed, I think we ended up with 383 surveys. And then you compile, you compile that data. And that data, here's a couple examples. Remember, if you if you're interested, just screen, just press the screenshot. You compile that data and it really begins to give you some insight on what some of their their sense of what's happening to their community and their sense of where they think they lost out on and that there are things that weren't, aren't being done any longer within the community. And then I always ask them, well, what do you think we could do to make it better for your community? What could we do uh, 
this is what negativity is impacting the community. Uh, and I, I allow you to uh, categorize it from worst to least. But I also asked them in the survey, what do you think we could do to implement uh, and bring back into the community to offset the, the influence at your level? And then you get all varied aspects of community insight. And it's really, it's really kind of unique and it's valuable because you're, you're, I've, I've never had a survey where the community has not exceeded my expectations because the, the knowledge is there, they're aware of what the issues are at that level, community level. They sense it every day, they see it every day, they acknowledge it every day. And a lot of them are saying, well, why isn't this, 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 and this done? You know, why don't we have a, a, an officer here? Why don't we have a camera here? Why, you know, things of that nature that are common sense, really common sense responses. But uh, for some reason within the evolution of that community, They've uh, discontinued certain certain uh, issues that used to be preventative in nature. So you write that into your assessment. This is what we assessed. This is what we measured. This is what the community gave us. This is what the solution of the communities are. So you're not going in there and tell. And this is really this is really valuable to me. And this is uh, Emily brought this up. Department of Justice coming in and give telling you with this notebook what you're doing is you're having the community partner with you and giving you the direction that you're looking for to write a strategic response and that's completely different than coming in and telling the community what to do uh, and that's why the survey is so important because it's a partnership and it gives you that insight and direction that the community has and you you include that insight and on top of the data uh, and we'll we'll talk about the data is good. I have no problem with data, but the surveys I think are are very powerful because you know you have individuals that are giving you their level of information and interest on what the challenges are, and then you hey, Chris, you can compile it. Go ahead. Uh, real quick, I think we have a question about surveys. Okay. I was wondering. I had one question, but you kind of already answered it. It was one, if we could see some examples and you had just showed that. Uh, one would be in community assessment assessments, what are examples that you have seen of growth patterns and trends? And then actually I have a different question after that, which would be, uh, would there be a benefit to have these assessment findings available to the whole community, like either on a website or, or somewhere given out to the community and how could that be done? I think there is a benefit to the community, but I don't think because when I when I do an assessment, I not only put quantitative information, I I put examples on the on on my assessment, and I think sometimes the examples are taken out of context. So uh, because the assessment oftentimes is used internally, so if you can put like the say the the uh, percentage results for what they feel some of the issues are and how they rate the, the community challenges from worst to least, I think it would be a great hat issue to put on there. Some of the other issues kind of like this drug survey that shows what, what they see their family using in the form of illicit substance in their, in their setting, I, I think also would be impacted. As far and especially if you can if you can look at 
crime data, one of the things that we saw was a connection between the increase in methamphetamines and property crimes. Because that's telling you that, you know, these drug users are very active in the community to try to find resources to purchase and, and use the drugs in that setting. So law enforcement data is real important because you'll see you'll see trends. I think some of the some of the crime I saw for the assessment was kind of overwhelming work. I think they had like a 300% increase in sexual assault. This was pre-COVID. And I think they had like a 200% in community burglaries. You can tell when that is mushrooming behavior and that mushrooming behavior in the form of criminal activity, it's going to cause a, a, a real outbreak uh, within that particular setting. And it, and it did. Uh, so that's why I think it's real important to connect that connect the two points and surveys can be <clears throat> surveys can be released to the public as long as there's a sense of what will do more good than harm because I don't think specific examples are a good thing to do because people will say well I, I know who that is and I well I know where that picture came from and things of that nature so but just general data is good for a community to be aware of what is that term you used, mushrooming? Mushrooming mm -hmm. is when the criminal behavior gets to a certain point and then there's, there's overwhelming, where it's like, you know, uh, for example, a, a six to 8% increase in criminal activity from year to year, it's, it's not uncommon. But when you see like 325% increase in sexual assault, I mean, that's mushrooming. That's, that's really, that's exploding of behavior. And that's telling you that uh, something significant and drastic is going to transpire in that setting. But you got you you could do that with crime data. And the good thing is, is that you have you can compare that to crime data to tribal crime data and then local crime data. If you find that there's only a 3% increase in sexual assault in your surrounding communities, but there's a 300% increase in sexual assault in trial communities that there's something's amiss. Something's not not uh, right with regards to either the reporting process or the investigative process, or it's being underreported or maybe overreported. Uh, it just depends on what the data is, what the stats are, and uh, you know what the response is within that particular setting. Which brings us back to data, compiling that supportive data. You know, behavioral trends are best determined within a three-year period. I always ask for a three-year period. One of the caveats right now is that 2020 and 2021 are useless because of COVID. So you're, you're, it's going to be impossible to find any real trends with 2020 and 2021. Uh, this year is going to be, so you're going to have to go from 2019 and use 2022 uh, to see what whether there was really a transition of certain behaviors. And statistical information can be used to support an assessment and a strategic plan. If you say, I'll go back to what I mentioned before. If you say a 300% increase in sexual assault, you are uh, looking at an emergency situation and 
you had better get some uh, advocates, you'd better get some law enforcement, uh, maybe even develop a sexual assault task force and maybe even begin to have community-based locations where victims can come in and and have some safe safety and safe havens. That level of increase, that tells you that uh, there's really something going on. You, you cannot just accept 327% say, well, you know, we investigate the cases as they come in. No, it's just, that's way too much. It needs specialized attention. If there, here's an example uh, with regards to statistics. If there's an increase in property crimes that co coincides with the access of illicit narcotics, it's safe to say that the property crimes increase, burglary, thefts, larcenies, is connected to the availability of drugs and drug traffickers within that community. Because it's very common for the two to go hand in hand. Drug users and drug addicts, they will look to the easiest, straightest line to obtain resources that they can turn into money to purchase the product to meet their, their need and to feed their addiction. So usually what happens in a, in a community that has an increase in drug activity is you'll have an increase of property-related crimes and those property-related crimes will then, uh, you'll have a location or two where that money, where that property is gonna be turned over into cash. It's usually one to three cents on the dollar in the form of fencing. Now the most popular fencing locations are usually bars because they don't ask questions if someone comes in or asks somebody to come out in the back and look at a uh, you know stereo or whatever they they decide or jewelry or whatever they're stealing. So if you see an increase in property crimes, uh, you're it's because you're having a greater influence of of drug trafficking within that setting. And right now I think Perkadans have got are all the way to seventeen dollars a pill. And there are some, uh, there's, a, there's a dual pill, I forgot what it's called, but it's an opioid. It's $100 a pill. And it's, it's normally or frequently prescribed to tribal elders. And they're getting up to $100 a pill. Well, that's a lot of property that you have to steal to, uh, to be able to purchase those street drugs. So three years of crime stats, three years of charges, criminal charges, and three years of individuals referred to treatment will actually assist in, in uh, supporting the synopsis of an increase in drug usage or of a drug trend. You can also determine the amount of community members that will be impacted by those community risk factors. I'll give you an example on the, on the next slide. Uh, community enrollment numbers will provide the baseline information of your total amount of community youth. They, they categorize youth, uh, each, it goes tribe by tribe. Some tribes are, youth is under 21, other tribes youth are under 18. But you can determine, you can determine the amount of youth currently in need of services of existing race factors and then apply those growth patterns uh, within that region. And the result will identify the potential impact of your, of your risk factors within the next generation or within the next 18 months to two year span. Uh, and that's what you wanna offset is you wanna offset the next wave of the influence uh, within the youth population. 
here's an example. Our current data right now is identifying that the vaping usage is increasing 30% per year amongst tribal youth. Uh, if you apply this trend to your current youth population, then you can safely determine the level and degree of vaping that you're going to have within your community. Now, the reason youth are turning to vaping is because access of uh, liquid THC that is basically undetectable and they can flavor it like strawberry or whatever flavors there the vaping industry is, is using, but it's not detectable as THC unless you do a blood draw and do a blood test. So young people are aware of this trend. So now they're recognizing that the perfect vehicle for me to use THC, the elevated THC, not the THC and marijuana, because it's still relatively controllable through marijuana sales locations, but to concentrate that THC and use it uh, through a vaping device when it's, you're looking at purity of upper 90s, 92 to 97% pure. And that's not, that's not the marijuana that's being sold at the, at the legitimate uh, dispensaries. So the youth are looking at the, uh, the vehicle of vaping to uh, liquefy, use liquefied THC that's undetectable. So unfortunately wait, wait. that's, Chris, can you, um, can we frame this like as if we're talking to tribal grandmothers about the, what you just said a little bit, it's a uh, very technical and I don't want right. to miss any points it, yeah. on that. I, I, it is important to have the technical aspects, but to a native grandmother, we, that's might be raising grandchildren. You said there's differences in the THC that's present in vaping. What should they be kind of, cons what is the concern there? The, the concern is the, more, the higher impurity of THC, more impact of side effects young people will have. And the pure THC causes some pretty severe uh, psychosis and mental health issues. To, and they're even saying, uh, now they're saying uh, dependency and an increase of uh, young people using their control, uh, being able to control their behavior. Uh, so they're, they're less controllable and, and less, they're harder to supervise through the use of, because of the THC purity level. So the, as far as data goes, for example, if you have 300 tribal youth under 18 and we're growing 30% of year for 30% a year. So you're basically looking at a, a specific number of kids every generation that are gonna with uh, vaping. And subsequently, you'll see more and more young people turning to some of these illicit uh, vaping techniques in the form of THC. Your data will support that. So, and that's why it's important for uh, guardians and parents and grandparents to be aware of not only the vaping challenge, but also that they have the capacity and capability to mix, mix the vaping fluid. And one of our other challenges now is that we're having so much uh, fentanyl that's being laced in, in uh, marijuana and also being uh, laced in some of the va vaping liquid. Uh, and they're, they're still trying to find out how that's happening. But this is a recent trend within the past 
uh, year. <clears throat> We're seeing more and more young people that are accessing fentanyl in marijuana and, uh, and in liquid THC. So I hope that kind of clears it up a, a little bit more, but it is, uh, it is quite the challenge. Fentanyl is quite the challenge and there's uh, maybe we should, we would have an opportunity to do something more with regards to street drugs for community members and adults, but, but that's what the data does. So, so the last thing and probably the easiest thing for my opinion is uh, sustainability. I know people think it's the hardest thing to address when it comes to developing a task force, but it really isn't. It's actually one of the simplest things to do. A task force, a successful task force is not going to face very many challenges when it comes to financial support because you're actually addressing issues that the community leadership and also some of the other community programs are required to be able to address. Many communities have been looking for task force concept to address community issues for years. And once a task force shows a track record of being successful, it's, it's easy to have funding opportunities uh, and be continuous. Uh, there's a number of entities out there. Many task forces turn to state, federal, and local grants, which is fine if that's the way you want to uh, fund the task force or percentages from community-based grants. For example, uh, if you have uh, a drug court program, uh, the drug court program does have funding allocated for community-based task force and also community assessments. So they already have that funding in place to support a, an assessment and a, uh, a task force, not fully, but partially. Task force can also be funded from a, a variety of federal uh, programs. I know the Safe Trails programs has a task force funding and tribal youth program. Drug-Free Communities Grant is also a very good, you, the Drug-Free Communities Grant through SAMHSA actually has to be awarded to a community-based collaborative. Uh, the only problem with the Drug-Free uh, Communities Grant is that your collaborative, collaborative has got to be in existence for eight months before you can apply. So it, it, it does behoove a community to, a tribal community to establish these task force. And the great thing about the Drug-Free Communities Grant is it's a 10-year it's a grant and it's specific to uh, tribes uh, uh, introducing youth-related events and activities. The U.S. Attorney's Office also has uh, funding for community-based initiatives and community block grants. A lot of community block grants are available through HUD uh, and you can access those through tribal housing. I think probably the smartest way to go about this is that one of the most effective uh, mechanisms for task force funding is for the task force to identify itself uh, and create a 501c3, apply for private nonprofit status. And what this does is this, uh, the task force can then begin to look for private foundation funding, which is totally different than grant funding. Because the, the good thing about grant, uh, the foundation monies is that they're non-competitive. They're non-competitive. The foundations just give out the money until they run out. Number two is uh, you don't have to come up with this long drought out application like the grant process, the federal grant process has. 
Uh, you have to do is have your 501c3 identified, what the objectives of your 501c3, and how the funding will support the foundation's initiatives. Uh, and then you submit the amount that it can be, you can max out the amount that they want to award. And the good thing is, is that corporations backfill private foundation money all year long. It's a consistently funded source. So they're constantly awarding community-based initiatives. And you have every corporation in, in the United States that funds community-based uh, collaboratives. But you have to have that 501c3. I mean, we've, I've had task forces that have gotten money from Kellogg's, from Lowe's, from uh, the uh, George Lucas and his Star, Star Wars labs. I mean, all kinds of federal, uh, Apple, Microsoft, they set up foundation monies every year. Uh, and as long as it is within the framework of what they want to fund, then, then the uh, task force would be very well received in the form of a 501c3 and then an overall awardee for a strategy. So to me, that's the direction to take it. And there's even a, uh, one of the things that we even have tribal communities that want to develop community associations, a smaller community association, they can also apply for private nonprofit status. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a community, a, a coalition of tenants, or of residents and they develop their own 501c3, then they can apply for, for uh, uh, as a community coalition. And you can use that for street lights, street lights, cameras, bumps, street uh, speed bumps, signage. I mean, surveillance equipment, cameras. I mean, you can use that foundation money for any of those resources in the form of, of a community coalition. So that will pretty much end my third session and I'll turn it over to Emily. Uh, thanks, Chris. I really took in a lot about this. And I think one of the key components is that this is giving a step-by-step -step process and outlining it um, compared to, you know, compiled information that is generalized and handed to you, which I do think gives some aspect of, um, organization for tribes to at least frame what a task force is, the questions to ask. But really, when tribes are going through this training process from Department of Justice, it is leaving them a little bit like, well, what's the next step? How do we gather? We don't have a facilitator right. now. Our project facilitator in the federal government is on to the next tribe, on to the next topic. So I appreciate your comments, and I'll turn it over to Robin for hers. Yes, I totally agree with that kind of letting tribal members know, community members and task force members, that the federal government is not going to do this for us, even if we they could or if they wanted to. <laughs> this is something that we need to do for ourselves. But one of the big things I wanted to bring up is to thank you for acknowledging like energy and the groups. Uh, their strong emotions, because I think that's something that always kind of gets lost in the mix or is down <coughs> sometimes. And you also acknowledge that it's okay if they feel this way. And sometimes you, having that energy in your group or task force can be a good driver in keeping momentum. And I really appreciated that. 
because the whole, as a whole, I feel like advocates and families are definitely in the midst of these emotions. And um, before we started, I had showed you some pictures of my nephew's memorial and things like that. I'd shared pictures with you and just the experience. And that was two years in the planning. You know, we talked about how that was started. You know, he passed away in right before COVID started and then that delayed everything. And with the experience of having some external force uh, delay this grieving process and cut it short, or um, like I said, cut short or delayed it, has thrown a lot of families into the unknown. And the community's healing and grieving processes, and mainly the healing part, is also like in limbo. And we're and it reminds me a lot of just what Emily says at the end of each episode, which is like. We're operating under the duress of colonialism. And I feel that as we're talking about these task groups, because they are advocates and community members for those who have lost people who are important to them. They're all in this like healing limbo. And they're also trying to operate under this duress of not only colonialism, and it feels completely um, imposed upon at times, but I love that you continuously say like, this is why we need to continue to do it in this fashion. It seems like very analytical and it seems like has to be done this way, but there are reasons for it. Right. And um, for me, what that speaks to is that we'll be asked to be do, to, to do things above and beyond uh, what has ever been done for us, you know, as a community or as a tribal people, because we essentially have to be that, as you mentioned as well, the fluidity, that fluid portion in between um, what the community needs and how we can translate that into how can we get those needs met via, like you said, grants or uh, government assistance or some kind of institutional uh, impact, because those are the essentially the entities that we're trying to influence to help us make that large impact so that we can get out of this limbo of healing and grieving so that we can have our families move forward if that means like revisiting cold cases or having a better system we've seen a little bit of that having the alert system come about uh, in washington state at least and i hope that starts a trend you know for other states to also have their alert system but again in the end i just am so completely thankful for you for doing these workshops and let's see, I liked what you said earlier, I wrote it down. I said, tribes need more than just a recipe. And so we're be, I'm glad that we're also part of this uh, actual showing how to do it, not just giving a book and saying, here you go. But again, just thank you, Chris. Thank you for being here. I appreciate working with you guys. It's a lot of fun. Uh, we also have another announcement I'm going to give before we do our outro. I thought Chris was going to have a longer response. No, <laughs> but it's fun working with you too. <laughs> Okay, for announcements, the Not Invisible Act Commission. Last week, Secretary of Interior Deb Holland announced the Not Invisible Act Commission, which includes two Yakmanitian tribal members. The commission was established as a part of the Not Invisible Act, which Secretary Holland sponsored during her time in Congress, and includes a cross-jurisdictional advisory committee composed of law enforcement, tribal leaders, federal partners, service partner providers, family members of missing and murdered individuals, and survivors. 
The two Yakima Nation tribal members are Patricia Whitefoot, who's also a co-host on War Cry podcast. Uh, Patricia is on the commission as a survivor or family member of missing and murdered uh, person. And the other individual is Basilou Adams, officer with the Yakima Nation Police Department. As Robin said, we are an Indigenous-led podcast surviving under the duress of colonization and intergenerational trauma towards self-determination. If at any point during this session you need culturally appropriate advocacy or support, please contact Strong Hearts Native Helpline at 1-844-7-NATIVE or chat online at strongheartshelpline.org. I'm Emily Washings. And thank you to co-host Robin. Also, thank you to our guest, Chris Cuestas with National Violence Prevention Resource Center. This micro uh, workshop series is brought to you by Na'a Ilahi Fund. This is edited and produced by Robin Pibashi of Pibashi Studio. Music by Lee Sikakwaptiwa. Logo and shirts by John Olney Schellenberger with Native Anthro. And remember to please like, subscribe, or leave a comment. It really helps us out.